can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real Come, come, Mr. Ballard, you derive just as much pleasure from watching 10 hours of crypto-colonial propaganda as I do. (laughs) There it is. All right, I guess we'll start there. Welcome, one and all, to Be Real. It is a movie reviewing, reappraising, and genre hopping, of course. We hop two genres. Podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. My name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. What's up, my friend? Great to see you, buddy. It's great to lay eyes upon you. Yeah. What hopeful eyes you have. Is that true? I mean... Would you venture to say that they twinkle with wickedness, which is what uh, Honor Blackman from Goldfinger said of her now late co-star, Sean Connery? Sure. I got the sure out of him. Um, We are here today on the Playlist Podcast Network to, on a couple different missions from mom uh one honor the life and legacy of sir sean connery who passed away on halloween at age 90 two reappraise the movie goldeneye which came out 25 years ago and which i had always thought was kind of the first modern bond movie we'll talk about it what is the legacy of goldeneye and three because we you know need to orient this podcast around a hook in some way we're, we watched all the the first Bond movies by all the actors. So we're going to talk about uh, Dr. No, Live and Let Die, Living Daylights, Goldeneye, and Casino Royale. And can I get like two minutes on, on Her Majesty's Secret Service? Oh, you watched uh, the George Lazenby? I, I, did, I did a little extra credit for Lazenby. Wow, that's great. So that's what we're doing today. And by the way, all, please check out the Playlist Podcast Network wherever you get your shows, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. Recently, uh, Managing Editor Charles Barfield has kind of relaunched the Playlist Podcast on a weekly basis, talking about some new releases, got some director interviews, so check it out. All right, Noah, what does Bond mean to you? Or just after having watched this much Bond, what does it mean to you? Well, as you know, Chance, or maybe you don't know this, uh, I would say one of the movies I've watched most, just this, this the sheer amount of times, is uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. I could probably do that movie uh, front to back with a I've hand. I've watched that movie with you before. Do you, li- you like that movie? I, my relationship is sort of unclear because like, I, <laughs> I personally feel like it's a wonderful movie but that may just because be because I, i've seen it so many times and it just feels like it, it, this is sure. how it must be <laughs> we are we are both of the age of being brosnan bond babies oh yeah i mean it, it came to uh, a shock it came as a shock to me that there were even any other bonds can i give you my big takeaway oh please do Okay, so doing this exercise where we are inherently engaging with all the bond resets right I think what's so fascinating about this as like a big, clunky, 60-year-old Hollywood machine is it's also one of the absolute most self-hating franchises that we have. I mean, it is 
defined over and over again by the actors being like, I don't want to do that. And then getting involved like 10 years later than they thought they would. It's defined by the directors kind of dropping in and out and being like, I don't really want to do that anymore. Thematically, it is defined by this arc toward the franchise just like ending itself as it engages more and more with like who this guy is and the the inherently um, you know, geopolitically problematic or even evil nature of his job. Like the more self-aware the series becomes, the more it feels like it needs to end. Um, it's just really fascinating how it manages to propagate while also being so reactionary toward its own formula. Every time you like look at one of the new people taking over, it's always because like somebody's like, oh, it had gotten really like stupid, or it had gotten so violent, or like it, it was taking itself way too seriously. Like it hates, it kind of hates itself, which is fascinating. Yeah, it always comes back towards uh, the middle in some way, and yeah, now it's really positioned as like a property people really want to work on in a sort of prestige way, except for Daniel Craig, who would love to do anything else. <laughs> Cause it's, he's wanted to quit from the moment he started. Well, he always ends up spending like two weeks to six months in the hospital, either during or immediately after the principal photography is done. Mm-hmm. And so I imagine it's like not, while an exhilarating experience once or twice uh, is not something you'd probably want to repeat. Shall we start at the beginning? Sure. Where else does one start? One starts with 1962's Dr. No, directed by Terrence Young, the first Bond movie to star the the now late Sean Connery. Um, Can I read the IMDb synopsis? It's pretty good. Let's do it. A resourceful British government agent seeks answers in a case involving the disappearance of a colleague and the disruption of the American space program. My name is Bond, James Bond. My instructions were implicit. I was to leave for Jamaica in two hours, licensed to kill. Now you maybe miss it. You don't miss a thing. I decided to accept your invitation. I have to leave immediately just as things were getting interesting again. I love watching a movie from 1962 because, like, everyone is simultaneously 20 and 60 at the same time just because you remember them as, like, old people who recently just died. Totally. Well, and that is the absolute experience of watching this movie is taking in something that feels so old and so new at the same time, right? Like it opens on these MI6 agents slash bureaucrats in Jamaica getting assassinated and they're sitting around playing cards and they just seem like they're from 200 years ago. (laughs) It's like a bunch of a bunch of crusty Englishmen who are probably like mad about Indian independence. Oh, and yeah. you're just like, how, how old is this movie? And then you have the movie being overtly sexual in a way that the succeeding like 50 years of movies are too scared to be. And then you can also, I don't know, I just feel the novelty springing off the like the electric guitar and the theme song, I kept thinking that must be one of the absolute first times an electric guitar was ever used in a film score. Certainly in a movie like this. Yeah. Cause it's both 
a really beautifully shot like British movie and it's also this like weird action student film. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Like I think that's what jumped out at me just from the jump, just from like the little bullet hole thing like going across the screen that this movie doesn't know what a James Bond movie is. It does not. Let me ask you this before we get too into the weeds. Um what is the little bullet hole thing with James Bond walking across the screen and shooting the hole and then the hole itself bleeds into a cold open that usually does not include James Bond? Is it like you're spying on him? Is it like you're looking through a keyhole and then he shoots you through the keyhole? Yeah, are you like the his foil trying to shoot him, but he shoots you first just when you get a beat on him? Like, is it supposed to synthesize the the, the effort of hunting him? That's That seems right. And then he takes you down. That's right. I love how, too, you know what, what kind of Bond movie you're getting from the blood. Like, the sure. blood's gotten pretty serious over the years. <laughs> Like in, not, in this one, it's like a piece of like light red paper just like coming over the screen. But I hear what you're saying about Connery, that there is sort of a, a, a magnetism to him. And the fact that there's not a single female character in the movie uh, with which he doesn't exchange some sexual banter yeah. and or physical sexual contact. A lot of the really good writing done around his passing, um, especially Keith Phipps and GQ, is around how interestingly dark his charisma can be. But it's the getting away with it that is still the sort of fascinating part because he kind of embodies a certain getting away with it. Like there is a there is a darkness to that character with the, both the violence and the sex that is then just completely brushed off in every other mannerism. Right. Yeah, he's definitely having a great time. There's something about like the time he's having too that is just hilarious to watch. Just like sure. him in that early after he gets up from like the baccarat game or whatever, and it's just like a medium shot of him walking across a room with a woman who just desperately wants to have sex with him. Right. And he's just just killing it. Or fuck, even like him lighting that cigarette, like in the, you know, the Kate Winslet lifting up her hat intro kind of thing with him. Right. Uh, it's, he is, there's a magnetism there. Well, and so much of it's physical too, right? And it's kind of the F- Connery bond and the Craig bond that are like willing to get more sexual than any of the ones in the middle. And part of that is just Connery's physicality. He had, we were joking in the, the farewell to Kirk Douglas about his like late fifties triangle body. And Sean Connery has that <laughs> plus 50 pounds and seven inches of height on Kirk Douglas. I mean, he was, he was a bodybuilder um, as a young man. And of course that meant something very different in terms of like the physiques that you were seeing in the fifties versus like Mr. Universe. But um, you know, he's just so strapping and right. I kind of like, bulbous. He's not bulbous even a little bit. Um, <laughs> when he puts on the the Nehru jacket, once he gets onto Dr. No's Island, like that's just a giant piece of fabric and he is fucking filling it out. Well, that's the hilarious thing about it because there's that iconic moment where he has to first use the Walther PPK. And right. 
M asks him to like turn over this like p- like this pathetic Beretta he's been using or whatever. And you notice that he like undoes what appears to be like a form fitting athletic suit. And he's like got a gun under his arm that you didn't know was there because he's a perfect angle. I find this movie and the next couple with Conry too, they they are slighter than some of the ones to follow, but he manages to make them very involving. Um, I want to single out a moment where he goes up to the mountain bungalow of Miss Tara, who's a double agent and is trying to kill him. But he finds this out because they try to run him off the road on the way up to the bungalow. And he, so he knows that she's trying to keep him there with sex, but the, but the cavalry's not coming. And so he uses that very quickly. This happens in like five second motions in the movie to have sex with her twice because his intel is better. And that is so like flippantly dark um, and tells you (laughs) so much about like the landscape of this profession, like what her job is and what his job is and like how um, being, you know, having the drop on someone completely negates consent just because his intel is better. Um, and that's like not that, of course that doesn't pass a smell test in 2020, but those slight subtle dimensions make the movies, I think really interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. And bravo for you, uh, using the phrase 2020 smell test first. Sure. (laughs) You know, I was trying to cut um, you off with the mountain pass on that one. Yeah, you, and you did. You did. I think it's interesting, too, how these earlier movies, and it's just because of the action budgets like becoming outrageous as these things go on, but the moments like that, but also the moments where the film can focus on how pedestrian some of these moves are back and forth. Like a lot of Sean Connery bond is just him like being skeptical of someone else and then playing it to his advantage. You know, like he'll get in the car knowing full well that the man driving, it's trying to murder him. You know, he'll play along with eating breakfast, knowing full well that, you know, it's, it's probably poisoned and they're probably listening to them just because like he's trying to go to dinner. Yeah. Not going to break a sweat about it, though. Yeah, there is a there's a world weariness to him already. I laughed so hard when Dr. No lays out his plan and Connery goes, world domination, same old dream. It's like, this is the first (laughs) James Bond movie. Are you kidding me? Like the, and that goes to what I mean with the self hate. Like it's already so tired of itself, um, but it's going to wink its way through that. I love that it sets up that it, you know, the all the movies have that moment where Bond looks at the supervillain and goes, "What you're doing isn't actually like that elaborate or interesting. You've just dressed it up that way to feel <laughs> like you're morally superior." Right. Let's talk about what you said about the action parts being kind of like a student film because the, <laughs> which is one of your classic like rude insults, but I know what you mean because like from the jump. This, the the props of <laughs> like the lead into the set pieces are so enormous, but they don't like know how to shoot them. So from the moment he arrives on that island, it's like this island is too big for you to like 
show this chance encounter happening in an authentic way. So it's so there's a real like wandering that kind of happens where he's just like on the secret island and there's just like a lady getting shells. Yeah, just like a sea nymph collecting shells. Right. Uh, It's, yeah. I think the moment that did it for me, and we'll get back to Ursula Andress in a second, but the moment that did it for me where I kind of like made like a fart noise was when it's so obvious the spider is like in a glass case, like sitting on his chest. Right. Like that to me was, you know, considering we get to a point where like a space station collapses in on itself and like a lake that they've drained you know mm-hmm. the fact that they didn't actually want to put a spider on sean connery is like pretty hilarious yeah it is it's really true um yeah i think the prelude to to dr no i think is probably better than the the action itself like the scene where it's just joseph wiseman's voice on the intercom is is pretty haunting and pristine sure. somehow um but yeah, by the time you get to the final set piece where Bond is just like in a hazmat suit pretending to read a clipboard standing behind everyone and it's in that kind of like wide middle no man's land shot, you're like, this is the goofiest thing I've ever seen. Well, that's the thing, especially about the early Bonds, but I may argue about all the Bonds, is that they all have this moment where somebody's wearing like just an enormous space suit and they're fighting <laughs> someone else in an enormous space suit. And like one of them falls into a vat and like all you see is their arm like coming down or there's just like gasoline pooling in the side of this lair and nobody realizes like something like that. But for, yeah, for this one, it is the big set piece of yeah. Them in wherever uh, with the big pillars turning those knobs and pushing those buttons to make the spaceship blow up. Yeah, and they see him looking at the clipboard and they're like, you're supposed to be at the thing on the top. And he's like, oh, you yeah, clipboard, yeah, you're supposed on. to be over there. <laughs> you're the and one who like, turns the knob. This guy doesn't know what he's doing. Jogs over Joe Biden style in the same like no man's land shot. It's so funny. But Ursula Andress, yeah, she ahead. actually kind of holds her own, I would say, against both Connery and Bond. Like, she's pretty skeptical of the whole thing. I mean, and then you get a little bit of her backstory um, that explains her sort of distance uh, from male figures. But it does then set up this both plot device and, I would say, harmful gender norm that course bond literally sends i think in all five of these movies at one point sends the female lead away to protect her but then ultimately he has to go find her and bring her back into the action piece where she's the secret puzzle for like how the whole thing works out right yeah we have to trace the uh evolution or lack thereof of the the bond girl but um I do think she's a good scene partner for him. The actresses often are in the Connery movies because of the magnetism there. But um, the characters are just such zeros. Like I also watched (laughs) From Russia With Love, which I think is better and is in some ways is really good. But like, I just can't get over the fact that like, you know, even if you're willing to tangle with the sexual politics, it's like your your second or third build like most important character in the movie doesn't have anything going on with her. And it's, it kind of sucks. Right. Yeah. He'll like typically sleep with like two sort of characterless women and then fall for a third one. But you realize pretty quickly she's not any deeper. <laughs> right. More lines, but same amount of character. 
Absolutely, yeah. This movie also introduces one of my favorite Bond tropes, which is like a stupid vehicle. Oh, yeah, the dragon thing. It happens to be that weird flamethrowing dragon tank thing. Um, And later, please look it up on YouTube uh, if you haven't seen it. But the Diamonds (laughs) Are Forever Moon Rover is like maybe one of the funniest three minutes of cinema. Like if you put Benny Hill music to that, it would be absolutely perfect of just this goofy worrying like child's toy somehow taking down three economy sedans. <laughs> yeah. Outrunning them. It's uh, Out, it's just like it's, the suspension of the moon rovers axles is so much better. I have to say though, it was, it, it was hard to suspend my disbelief when this like three mile an hour flame throwing dragon car was somehow able to like get the jump on quarrel. And right. then it cuts to Connery and Andrus and they're like, ah, fuck. <laughs> not, not the most sensitive depiction of quarrel. Who's like a, I, it says here, he's a Cayman Islander. Um, who like can't hold his liquor and they're like, Coral, stop sneaking off to drink all that rum. And then he just like gets <laughs> fucking immolated with, with the rum coming through his pores. I don't know. Sorry, Coral. <laughs> um, but if okay. that didn't trouble you, if yeah, you want to talk about uh, white, <laughs> white people pretending to be Asian people. What about the titular Dr. No uh, and half German, half Asian character being played by a guy named Joseph Wiseman. It was such a common sin in Hollywood at that time. Um, it has a, its own Wikipedia page. It does. Um, but in terms of like, is this a good movie? It is a huge demerit against because it's just like, I can't get on board with that villain in that way. So with all of its 1962 sins and all of its not knowing what a James Bond movie naivete how do you rank Dr. No? On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories. A good or bad for technical quality, and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good, bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered, unfortunately, include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, Master. Got all that? Time for a rating. I think I would give Dr. No a bad good. It's very silly. Connery really puts the thing on his wide shoulders and makes it interesting yeah i think it's pretty quintessential bad good like i think goldfinger is good good i don't think it's quite figured out how to make this sort of movie yet and it has all the things that are entertaining about this which is just namely connery and the senseless action um so i didn't mind watching it but like when you're two hours in and you're just like 
just getting to the dinner scene where the bad guy explains what's right. happening. It's like, we've been watching this movie for a really long time. Have those changed, will you? Too bad you have to go. Just as things were getting interesting. Yes. Tell me, Miss Trench, do you play any other games? I mean, uh, besides Chemin de Fer. Hmm, golf, amongst other things. More afternoon, then? Tomorrow? Mm. See you. And, uh, we have dinner afterwards, perhaps? Sounds tempting. May I, um, let you know in the morning? Splendid. My number's on the card. A very fond farewell to a life well lived in Sir Sean Connery. And let's jump ahead now to 1973 and uh, Live and Let Die. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Can, can I do my Honor Majesty's Secret Service spiel? Please. Okay, so I checked in real quick with Lazenby. And Lazenby is interesting, Noah, because he is tall and handsome but he's not like suave. He doesn't have like movie star suave. So he, the ironic thing is that he's Australian, but he just kind of seems like an English bureaucrat on holiday through like most of the movie, which is sort of like appealing in a certain way. But there's also like a slight dopiness to the fact that he seems so real. Um, you know, like you, Pierce Brosnan is sometimes so perfect in the role, but also so bloodless. You know, you like, you like look at him and you're like, this is just like a creature that was genetically engineered to play James Bond. Like, look at his hair, look at his chin. And, and Lazenby's just like a dude. Um, but the movie's pretty good. It's more of like a, like a mystery, I would say. Um, okay. Dame Diana Rigg is his, uh, his co-star in it. She's wonderful and so beautiful. Um, a hallmark of this movie is like insane uppercuts, like Lazenby Bond in the fight is like, you know, Mike Tyson punch out fist on the floor uppercuts that miss by 10 feet and just <laughs> send people flying. Um, but yeah, you never really get over the, the, um, the idea that like Lazenby's not long for this part. Um. He even, like, right before the, the bullet hole credit jump, he even, like, looks right to camera and goes, this never happened to the other fella, <laughs> which is a level of hokiness that's not in the rest of the movie, but kind of lets you know where it's coming from. That's hilarious. Uh, to me, George Lazenby, he just looks a little bit too much like Anthony Perkins to be, like, a suave gentleman. Um but he yeah. has that quality of he's the youngest person ever to play Bond at 29, but he seems so old just because he's like a real person. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But he it's didn't live and let live. No, he did not. He did not. Uh, that's on Hulu, by the way, as are the next two films we're talking about. Hulu and Prime has the live and let die and living daylights, right? It's weird. Like some of them are on Hulu and Prime and some of them are on like Golden Eyes on Netflix. So and then Dr. No, you have to pay for. Right. Okay, let's go to Live and Let Die. The first Roger Moore, 1973, directed by Guy Hamilton. Um, you and I watched this together as a distraction on election night. 
and I said this today. <laughs> did that? Did the feelings swirling in your your gut and your mind that night affect your memory of this movie at all? In that I have no recollection of anything that happened in it. Um, yeah, I just remember I kept drinking beer. And but like my heart rate like kept going up throughout the night. It's like this is not supposed to happen on my fourth modelo. All I can remember is every time I reached a moment of like irreconcilable uh, anxiety, I would just say into my AirPods, Roger Moore. <laughs> so this is a good place to start. Um, you and I were teasing Sir Roger because he comes off as a real dad. In this movie. Oh, for sure. He's 46 when he starts playing James Bond. Um, at this point, he's been uh, a veteran of TV's The Saint, um, which... It, is it the same intellectual property as the Val Kilmer movie? Indeed, yeah. Oh, um, my. So that's... Clearly a good one. Basically like a five-year audition tape for this exact same role. But already you have the thing of... Everyone's like always like a little too old when they get to the part because the broccolis move so slow and everyone's so reticent, you know, like more like Dalton was supposed to replace Connery like at age 29, but he's just like, no, Connery's too good. I don't want to do it. And more had just kind of been waiting in the wings like a little too long. Like it's always the same conversation, right? Like 10 years ago, people were like Idris Elba should play Bond. Um, the ship has sailed. Idris Elba, I think, is like 50 now. Everybody's like, Tom Hardy should play Bond. Tom Hardy is in his mid-40s. Like, what? Every time we're just like, this is the hot, young, perfect actor who would look great in the suit right now, the franchise manages to kind of like hand ring until that person's like a little too old for the part. So this one, of course, the summary begins. Yep. James Bond is sent to stop a diabolically brilliant heroin magnate armed with a complex organization and a reliable psychic tarot card reader. Roger Moore is James Bond, 007, in Ian Fleming's Live and Let Die. My name's Bob. James. Names is for tombstones, baby. Waste him now. James Bond is back, and wherever he drops in, it can mean only one thing. Trouble! This is the Bond adventure with more excitement, more action, more danger, and more. Much more. Roger Moore as James Bond, 007. What happens to these movies that like that happens with the Brosnan ones too, where it's just like calls for such a suspension of disbelief that like uh, Dr. Quinn medicine woman is so good of a tarot reader that she can in fact control a, like a drug army. <laughs> I mean, you have just some truly unflattering uh, portrayals of black characters, like mugging the camera um, some real like panic around exploitative like voodoo stuff. Um, but nothing I think speaks more loudly to the problem than Jane Seymour being like the 20 something white girl 
who's like the tarot expert in the middle of all of it. Yeah. Yeah, this is a very strange film. So you yeah. have this this Mr. Big, the Yafid Kodo character. And there's also the interesting thing of Yafid Kodo is playing two people. He's playing like the kingpin and also the kingpin's like sort of freakazoid hype man. <laughs> well, Dr. Kananga is the the prime minister of the fake Caribbean island of San Monique. That's right. Um, you don't know that he's Mr. Big, except for like when he shows up. And I think I think I said, is that Yavit Kodo? And you said, is that a black person doing blackface in whiteface? Like his... I for a minute thought it was a white actor who was like in black makeup and was terrified. Right. Um, no, it's just a totally needless prosthetic for a character that has a scene and a half, and you're like, ah, see, I'm Kananga. It's like, but I didn't know who you were. <laughs> yeah, you were just that weird-looking guy from one other scene. So the basic plot of this movie is set in these, like, predominantly black areas of these major urban centers where, for some reason, I guess because they're, like, on to Mr. Big slash Kananga, uh these double O agents have been murdered. Like one in a pretty goofy, like new Orleans jazz breakdown. Fantastic. Which is great. Um, and then through a series of like elaborate trap doors in this Harlem set one, mm -hmm. it's pretty good. And so I think it, it, it has that kind of Bondian thing where there's that those good set pieces that sort of have these ridiculous elements to them that the characters have to navigate. I mean, it's it goes back to like Connery navigating the air shafts after he gets out of his prison cell and Dr. No. But then like the movie, didn't you feel like the whole time it had this this like greater ambition to be something larger and like much weirder. And yes. that is what yields like the 45 minute boat chase <laughs> and that iconic scene with the alligators. Because by the time you get to the sacrificial ceremony that is being overseen by Baron Samiti played by Jeffrey Holder, you're like waiting for the movie to make good on whether there like is magic. Um, and it's entirely unclear. Like Bond shoots a, like a resurrection that turns out to be a, a fake guy, but it's not like pull, you know, unmasking the ceremony like proves anything. And also the movie's understanding of tarot is ridiculous just like the most ridiculous thing in the world. It's like tarot is the same as like clairvoyance style. Yafa Koda's like solitary. Can you guess this watch number by like pulling the queen of cups? That's not what tarot is. Right. It's like, Oh, this is the drug deal. will go positively card. <laughs> and bond of course has a moment of like stacking her deck with like all lovers cards. So she has to sleep with him. That's just tarot rules for you. I think what troubles me about this movie too is it sort of overplays. Um, it like has too many henchmen. Yeah. Like there's both Baron Samiti and then there's also the guy with the metal hand. Right. Uh, played by Julius Harris. Teehee. Mm -hmm. 
good, great name. <laughs> great name. No, it is But, not. like, there only, there has to just be, the like, one of those people. And Dr. No definitely suffers from not having that, like, douchey goon who gets it in a really horrible way in the end. But this one, too many. I would say too many douchey goons. Yeah, this is like a exploitation movie meets Abbott and Costello with like all the trapdoor oh, yeah. humor. Um, I don't know. I know a lot of people really like Roger Moore. I just don't think he does it for me because um, he always just seems a notch away from Leslie Nielsen. And I just want just go the extra notch. He feels so uncomplicated while also like not having the fun that I want him to have, if that makes sense, for how goofy everything else is. Well, and the weird thing, too, is as, there's that aforementioned boat scene where so much of it is like a wide shot stunt double driving a boat and so little of it is like extra close up of him with like a green water screen yeah, or whatever. You know, of course, it wasn't a green screen uh, in the 1970s, but he disappears from the movie. So it's difficult to be endeared to him through the back half, which becomes this weird sort of satire of like American local crime uh, or law enforcement. Yeah, it's that like has a nothing fucking... to do with James Bond. It's like a Dukes it's of like Hazard episode. Yes, it's an episode of Dukes of Hazard. It's so bizarre. Really focusing a lot on Clifton James's portrayal of Sheriff J.W. Pepper, who Wikipedia describes as an uncouth Louisiana sheriff. <laughs> the conservative nightmare is coming true right before his very eyes, and it's being led by this suave British <laughs> grandfather. While also, <laughs> while also not being in the movie, the grandfather. Right. That was a point where you turned to me. You're like, "Is this a James Bond movie?" <laughs> yeah. Did we start watching something else? We should probably rate "Live and Let Die." Um, the song is incredible, but like, it's oh. just a great Paul McCartney song. Um, so the movie has that to its advantage, but it just doesn't do a lot for me. I should probably revisit "Spy Who Loved Me" and "Man with Golden Gun" and "Moonraker." I think those are generally more considered like more quintessential more bond movies i don't think this one is thought particularly highly of uh, and that includes me so i'm gonna give it a bad bad yeah i think i'm gonna agree with you um maybe i would feel different if election night wasn't such a nail biter sure but... wait so but let me ask you this about our experiment what does one learn or not learn by watching all the first movies because in some cases we're missing their best work and in some cases we're not. Yes. I think this is for the first two, at least not their best work. Um, but yeah, I mean that, as you were saying at the front, the franchises try each iteration of the franchise tries so hard to reset itself that the movies are either like a little bit too bland or like a little bit too much of whatever the other thing wasn't mm -hmm. over or under think, correction. Right. And this one feels like an overcorrection from like the quiet sort of, you know, uh, back and forth office humor of Sean Connery. Yeah. And this one is like trying too hard to be an action movie with outrageous things and outrageous characters. Right. So let's bad bad. Did I say that is. bad bad? You got it. So then Roger Moore is 
James Bond for a long goddamn time. Um, for almost another 15 years, um, he made the most James Bond movies. He was in his 50s by the end of it and professed to being horrified when he found out that he was older than his uh, than his co-leading lady's mother in the last one of You to Kill. <laughs> that was part of why he Incredible. Um, so then we get, in 87, Timothy Dalton's two-movie run, starting with The Living Daylights. Noah, what is The Living Daylights synopsis? James Bond ah. is sent to investigate a KGB policy to kill all enemy spies and uncovers an arms deal that potentially has major global ramifications. The name that means excitement is back. Bond. James Bond. That girl must be very talented. Shoot up. Believe me, my interest in her is purely professional. What is this? I've had a few optional extras installed. Wherever he goes, adventure follows. Already off the bat, I would much rather see like USSR stereotypes than two back-to-back movies like set in predominantly black populations. For sure. Just goes I mean, down it, a lot stereotypes of those populations. Right, totally. Um, so this one feels safer just just right out the gate. Nobody is getting hurt, I don't think, by Jerome Crabb and John Rice Davies hamming it up as Russian agents. No. I still think, you know, we're probably enemies with Russia, and that's fine. Because of Jerome Crabb, primarily. Right, and his, his epic double cross. Right. And also because of him faking the results of... Uh, RUD 90 so that Devlin McGregor could give us Provasic. Yes. That really <laughs> caused all that trouble um, with Harrison Ford and the fugitive. It was nice to see him not playing an American for once. That is the thing that we always give Jerome Crabb so much shit for is being like someone's like American doctor husband. Richard. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I saw Richard last week. I gave him a hundred American dollars. no, <laughs> I gave him a hundred US. (laughs) We just say dollars, doctor. Um, Timothy Dalton is miscast. Let's say that from the jump. Okay. Timothy Dalton is too, like, bushy. Like, his hair isn't quite right. And maybe it's just the fact that it's 1987, but he's just like a little too sharp. He's a little too angular. There's something that's like, he doesn't have, it's, it's, it's such a subtle difference, but to me, he looks like a villain of one of these kinds of movies. And I made the joke to you via text when I was watching this, that he kind of looks and sounds um, like Sean Bean, which is funny because Sean Bean will end up being the first villain that Pierce Brosnan, who's a total reversal back to um, the Roger Moore visual style of James Bond. Right. I think once again, kind of more like Lazenby, this feels like a turn toward realism and Timothy Dalton feels like they 
took a melon baller to all of the things that we were so sick of with Roger Moore after 12 years, but they didn't put a lot back in. Um, like to hear Timothy Dalton talk about what he wanted to bring to the character was seriousness and grit. And that is not what I got from watching this movie. What I get from watching him act, frankly just reads as sincerity, which is sometimes actually surprisingly nice, but sometimes just feels like a very drab choice that when Bond says something like, well, at the end, after they've blown up half of Afghanistan and there he's in the Jeep on the road to Karachi and he goes, ah, I know a great restaurant in Karachi. And you kind of just feel like he wants to have dinner. Like he doesn't even mean anything by it. He's like, this is just a man who is sincere about his hunger. I would take sincere and I would raise you like a little bit dumb. Ah, really? Like he almost comes off as sort of like he just has no depth really to him. And this is all like, you know, just part of the the plan. He's very like easily talked into things that he'll make jokes about. Like the fact that they go back for that fucking cello and then he like learns all the fun Wikipedia facts about the cello and he's like telling people about it. You know, he's just kind of like easily amused. Like he's physically imposing, sure, but he's also like goofy. He kind of like is is like Kronk from the, the Emperor's New Groove a little bit. Like he can do all the things, kind of, but he doesn't know why he's doing them. He, I mean, and maybe that is a bond, just sort of that blunt instrument. I would say this is probably the, maybe the most acting of the five. James Bond that tries the hardest? I think that's Craig, but just to much, much, much better results. Sure. Um, yeah. I, again, there's a cuteness of this movie that like was I was rather taken with. You know, James Bond compliments Kara, who's played by Miriam Diabo, um, on her playing because she's a she's a cellist, and he goes, "I've heard you play; it's exquisite." And I was very struck in that moment of like that. But that's again, that's all he means by that. This is a James Bond who like cares about the quality of this woman's music. Like, what a curious choice that is sort of otherwise unremarked upon as the character is not that morally different he's just sort of like cute in these ways i thought the cello skiing set piece was if anything just kind of adorable it was it was kind of cute miriam diabo who by the way i couldn't believe this she's cousins to olivia diabo from kicking and screaming love that they look the one that goes to uh similar she goes to prague Right. You think Bond's ever been to Prague? Like, been to Prague, been to Prague? I, he's definitely been to Prague, been to Prague. I think he knows what that Prague thing is, too. Incredible. Good Our martini. jokes are so <laughs> specific. Um, she kind of sets a new standard, though, I think, for Bond women being involved in the plot and having certain skills and not exclusively being eye candy. Like, this is also comparatively a very chaste movie yeah there's not a ton of sex in it um and i would agree that she's definitely the most capable to date and it's interesting like giving her the way natalia has like the computer hacking skills like giving her the cello skill kind of separates her um you know from these sort of exotic nymphs that seem to pop out of 
interesting right. set pieces to help James Bond. It was it felt very fitting that when I looked into Miriam Diabo a little bit more, she had written a book on uh, sort of a critical investigation into the Bond girls and how they evolved because she really feels like an inflection point for that. I think this movie also benefits from a strong supporting cast. Uh, Krabby, Dabo, and of course, John Reese davies from Raiders of the Lost Ark, who then plays kind of like the, the Valentine character from Goldeneye. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think he does it to good effect because you have to believe this one, I guess all of them kind of have that thing of like whose team is everybody on kind of stuff. But this one really like goes for the double and then triple cross. Right. And so I think he's a good grounding force to be like, actually, trust me, I'm the good guy deep down, even if I behave in a way that doesn't seem like it at the time. Yeah. Am I getting this part of the plot right? So Joe Don Baker is this like rogue American arms dealer who in hilarious ways is like obsessed with American military history and is like sort of always like cosplaying out battles and shit or world military history. Um, He's got like a wax Hitler figurine in his vestibule. That's right. Um, That's not really American military. I guess it was a side of American military. Whatever. Keep going. What a rogue general does in his own vestibule is his business. Um, but yeah, he is the he's the mover and shaker amid the more geopolitically recognizable KGB and MI6 divide. And so Jerome Crabb is betraying the KGB by pretending to defect to MI6, but he's really just trying to sell heroin in Afghanistan so that he can make money for Joe Don. Is that right? Close enough. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a double cross about a defection that is supposed to distract enough that, yeah, this drug for gun exchange can be done, but it gets gummed up by one James Bond. That's right. Okay, come on. (laughs) Okay, so here's my big question. John Glenn is the director of this movie, not the astronaut, but the director who'd been involved in some of the later Moore ones, and he'd been a second unit director and an editor on Bond movies throughout the 70s. Um, After landing the lunar lander? No, no. And he bridges this gap between directing Moore ones and directing Dalton ones. Um, I have to say, when when you get to the end and you see the the tanks and the guns and the trucks on this Soviet airfield in Afghanistan and the scope of the action, it made me question what was going to be my kind of hook into Goldeneye, which is that we'll Goldeneye is the first modern James Bond movie. Um, I wonder if it's this. This is not that different, I think, than the action in Goldeneye. What do you think? Yeah, and I don't think it's a lot different than the action in Casino Royale leading up to the present. I really do agree with you that this is an inflection point where the movies kind of trade in a visual goofiness, trapdoors and such, uh, for spectacle of 
okay, like they may be riding in a cello case, but they're still going to go down like a 5,000 foot cliff thing. Right. And it's going to be like the best special effect we can pull off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that does not seem to have, you know, changed at all. We've not gone back to like the parlor James Bond. So Living Daylights, I think I'm going to give it a good bad. It was a nice surprise in some ways. I do think it was very technically proficient. I think that, um, you know, Dalton is clever and cute sometimes. I felt like it was a real, um, a real demarcation point when the, you know, he uses the laser to cut off the top half of that car and his, his bond laugh line is salt corrosion. Which yeah, is salt corrosion. Which is a clever thing to say about a car going off the road and is not what Roger Moore would have said, which would have been like, you know, bottoms up or, <laughs> or something like that. Something relating to a car cutting in half. Um, so yeah, it's nice to see the evolution. I think some things are stripped out. I don't think there are quite enough ideas for what to add, and that extends to Timothy Dalton himself. So good, bad. See, I'm going to do the exact opposite for almost the exact same reason. Like, I think because Dalton doesn't do the Bond thing is really the only thing that's that wrong with it. But that's such a, like a bad, like if your Bond just doesn't work, I mean, like that's your movie. You maybe have an entertaining action movie on your hands, which is inherently bad, good. But I think as like a Bond franchise film, just having that central item there off key a little bit. Uh, while this may have been an entertaining movie to watch, uh, was definitely not my favorite of the five. Fair enough. All right. Should we go to the now 25 year old golden eye? Did you remember that not only did Tina Turner sing the golden eye song, but that Bono and the edge wrote the song. I didn't remember either of those things, but I was shocked at the information. Noah, what is the synopsis for golden eye? This one has a modifier in the front of it. Years after a friend and fellow double O agent is killed on a joint mission, a secret space based weapons program known as golden eye is stolen. It's maybe a dangling modifier, if we're being real. I think uh, it was, and fails to mention James Bond. Here we go. James Bond sets out to stop a Russian crime syndicate from using the weapon. It was very distracting to me in 2020 that the Russian crime syndicate is called Giannis, who is, I, I know you're not an NBA guy, but a very famous basketball player. It would be like if in live and let die like they kept referring to their crime organization as Shaq, and like every time you're supposed to hear that you're like they're gonna take that information back to Shaq. i mean i think specter is already the perfectly named crime organization so why not just stick with that right right okay a little golden eye trivia at the top this is the first james bond movie not based on an ian fleming novel it is the Hollywood machine doing its thing, being like, okay, we've we've done 20 of these. We can, we can whip up something slightly adjacent. Um, a funnier bit of trivia is that they didn't make it at Pinewood Studios in London, which is the longtime home of this series. And why? Because Sir Sean Connery was making The First Night with Jerry Zucker 
using all of that ghost cachet on a King Arthur movie at Pinewood. They couldn't get in. Incredible. What a, that was almost like a Tim Curry fun fact there. It was close. It was an SC FF. I've got to say though, putting this particular story through the Hollywood machine renders the plot a lot easier to follow. Yeah, I would say that's true. I would say this one, uh, at least to date uh, of the other three made the most sense. I've also, mm-hmm. again, seen this movie, maybe the maybe these movies are meant to be watched, you know, 20 to 50 times over the course of one's life. And then you're like, oh, like, that's why. When the world is the target. 72 hours ago, a secret weapon system was detonated over seven iron. And the threat is real. Golden Eye exists. A radiation surge that destroys everything with an electronic circuit. You can still depend on one man. I want you to find Goldeneye. Three. Find who took it. Two. And stop it. One. The name's Bond. James Bond. The world's most famous secret agent is back. We aim to please. And this time, 007 is facing the ultimate enemy. The man who knows him best. Hello, James. What an unpleasant surprise. 006. What's the matter? No pithy comeback? He was your friend. And now he's your enemy and you will kill him. Is the satellite in range? Target is London. Now, the entire world is about to be caught in the crossfire. See you in hell, James. You first. Kill him. The pleasure will be all mine. But this one is a classic story of... And this becomes, of course, the model, too, that'll then be taken up in Skyfall. But the other double O agent revenge story, which I think is such a great way to in a 21st century, well, almost with this one, kind of look at the morality of what it is James is doing if you zoom out a little bit. Um, And of course, that's through the Alec Trevelyan character that Sean Bean plays Mm -hmm. uh, brilliantly, I may add. I think this is also an inflection point too where it's like, you know, there there have been the Christopher Lees um, and there have been like some good actors playing like alongside uh, James Bond as the villain. But this one, it's just like really getting a, like a good British actor as good as Pierce Brosnan, who we should better. Uh, yeah, yeah, better. A better actor than the James Bond actor to play the villain, uh, I think is a brilliant choice. And one that seems to uh, be the way they're doing it going forward. Right, with Javier Bardem and Rami Malek. Yeah. I mean, and- maybe we haven't seen that one yet. And Christoph Waltz, the attempt was to do that, even though neither of us liked Spectre at all. Um, oh, Matthew Ulmerich. Who's that? He's the Is guy the from the Diving Bell and the... Yeah, he's the Quantum of Solace guy. Fun. Um, Mads Mikkelsen, though. These are all better actors than Daniel Craig. Totally. Uh, well... They're all better than Pierce Brosnan. I'll say that. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, Pierce Brosnan is uh, this return to, like I'm saying, this Roger Moore kind of. 
But I'll, you know what I will give it to Pierce Brosnan for is the fact that like that dude is okay with getting really dirty. What do you mean by that? Like this, I think is the first time where by the end of the huge set piece, like sure Bond will get like, you know, some water on his cuffed like khaki pants while they're, you know, they're putting reeds up to breathe when the guards are chasing them through the cenote or whatever. But like Pierce Brosnan, by the end of the set piece in the, you know, the underwater above water lake uh, satellite thing is like bleeding pretty heavily and just covered with dirt and i think it's pretty like that's timothy dalton didn't quite get there but brosnan really goes for it physically i would say yeah but that's also my problem with him i think he he looks the part better than i mean he looks like he was made in a lab to play the part and again he was supposed to play it in the 80s and he was just like no i'm doing remington steel i can't do it um he walks perfectly. It's so funny how these guys like have to audition for this role that it would be better if they just played that role. Exactly. Um, he he turns perfectly. He he narrows. He his holds eyes a perfectly. gun really well. He holds a gun very well. The gunplay actually is uh, heightened in this movie compared to the ones that came before. That's oh like, for there's, sure. There's a lot lots of, of rounds. Lots of Uzi work and diving out of the way. Um, Oh, yeah, a lot of uh, AK-47s being strewn about when one is out of ammunition. I got to say, though, and we made fun of him for this with Dante's Peak, Pierce, especially compared to Daniel Craig, and especially compared to Sean Connery, Pierce is not a good athlete. Um, And so he really needs needs Sean Bean to sell the combat of that last scene, which Sean Bean does amazingly because he's such a gifted physical actor and such a fucking tornado of rage in all these villain parts in the 90s. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, he's a little too... I mean, he goes back to Roger Moore's kind of like cool dad. Like his arms go up a little too high when he sprints, (laughs) you know? And watching him like creep really slowly with all those gas tanks, like right. in the opening scene, it's like, come on, Pierce. Yeah. Tyke, Tom Cruise and Daniel Craig know that if you lift your arms that high, you only create more wind resistance, but Pierce doesn't know that. Um, Pierce does not know that. I like what you said earlier, and I totally agree, and I want to kind of place this movie in a context of its own self-awareness, because you have Judy Dench coming on as M in, in this yes. one. Um, and boy, Thank the- God the chemistry that she creates. I mean, I'm sorry, Bernard Lee, but this is Dame Judy Dench we're talking about. Um, she creates, she has more, I think like, um, sexual chemistry and interesting power dynamics with Pierce Brosnan than I think any of the bond girls, because she's just like instantly kind of puts him in his place. You're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur of the cold war, but I want you in this very specific way, which is to do what I want you to do. Um, and I, it's, I don't like read a ton of sexuality into that, but when you're talking about, you know, the relationships that bond has, it is all about like who has the power to make the other person do what, who has the charisma, who has the authority and Judy Dench has it. Um, but it's so funny cause you can feel this movie is kind of in a fight with itself of like, well, how self-aware do we want to get? And nothing is a clearer signpost of what stage of bond we're at than him uh, wooing and sleeping with a psychiatrist who's supposed to analyze him in the opening scene. It's it's right. just like, 
he's yes he's being evaluated because james bond is like a wild man and that's a joke but no he's not going to be analyzed he's going to fuck the psychiatrist sure i think it's funny too that like as kind of a wink to the audience sean bean goes i hear m is a woman now right and that sort of like speaks to because of course he was a double o agent like almost from not even a different uh geopolitical time but a different movie time uh where it had to be a man you were taking orders from um but yeah i mean thank god that they introduced judy dench to these films uh otherwise they would have gotten strange of course now they've gone back to ray fines but you know we'll see where that ends up um and then of course this movie has a great supporting cast as well uh you've got robbie coltrane in there hagrid mm-hmm. um you funnily enough have joe don baker who was the bad guy in the last movie now playing the like american cia counterpart in this one uh, jack wade who he'll reprise in another in the next movie too still making fun of americans joe don baker but just on the on the good team right he was able to rehabilitate his image after uh, he died in the last movie (laughs) (laughs) Um, this one has Alan Cumming in it in a great role too. And I got to tell you, man, when I saw this movie, like as 95, what a seven year old. Yeah. Uh, I think that the Famke Jansen Zenya on performance was like <laughs> when I knew I was a heterosexual man, you know, that was a real sexual coming of age for me. There was something about her killing men with her powerful thighs in the throes of passion that that awake that you knew who you were yeah that was the moment where seven-year-old noah looked at the vcr and was like oh my (laughs) um that is a fucking bonkers performance that for sure i don't know if i love it it is watchable though um yeah she's the douchey goon who gets it in the end in horrible fashion. I got to say, I was disappointed with the first hour of this movie more than I remembered. Uh, I think it gets a lot better when Sean Bean shows back up and then you go Moscow tank chase into the train, into the train and then, and then onto the satellite Island. Right. And the satellite Island is really fucking cool um it's it's a observatory in puerto rico and that too is the thing where like we talked about like if you watch goldfinger it's the same thing where like it's fort knox but they're shooting it from too far away for the action to be interesting like the environment is too big so you're just like watching little soldiers run up steps while people like pass out from nerve gas and that's so much of the experience (laughs) of these climactic sequences in the early movies and by the time you get here martin campbell has found this completely anomalistic thing in puerto rico that looks like it was built it had to be built for a james bond movie but somehow wasn't um and yeah. is able to cut between the close-ups and the wide shots in a really interesting way. And it's, yeah, it's iconic for sure. Um, but I think this movie figures out, you know, and The Living Daylights does as well, but having that final set piece be both close-up in the control room here and also on that wide scale where they're running around that catwalk, like, and not 
putting the two pieces together necessarily. Right. So there's exactly. like the the computer stuff going on and there's the actual physical action happening between Sean Bean and Pierce Brosnan on these little these little walkways. So you don't exactly you don't exactly you don't feel like you're watching little army men run around or whatever while right. Connery's stunt double kills someone. <laughs> uh this feels a bit more tense because you've left things that are happening in another place to happen. And then, you know, when he then puts the pipe uh, in the pulleys that are making the thing rotate, that then affects the computer scene. So it's it's very, like, artfully done in a visual direction sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can... You can also just sense that they have more money and they are dead set on making more money, which the Brosnan movies start to do that again after some of the financial uh, lukewarmness of the late Moore and, and Dalton ones. Because we were, we were joking about Alan Cumming over text today. Like, this is a time in blockbuster action filmmaking where they were like, yeah, we'll get some recognizable young actor to play just the most annoying character. And he's like the ninth the ninth build person in the movie. I am so, invincible. So all the little kids will go home and yell. With a catchphrase. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The idiot punchline catchphrase character. Right. Um, but I think, I don't know. He's iconic though. And it's Alan fucking coming. Like, I'm not going to say like, oh, he's bad in this. And he of course gets his in the end. Indeed. I'm disappointed. This movie begins to set the precedent, A, because it's so long, and B, because they like feel like they have to hit so many tropes where, I mean, other than the really like the the car that they set up in the queue scene like doesn't end up really playing a role, right? which they will get back tenfold in the next movie in one of the cooler like Bond car chase scenes, in my humble opinion. Um but I feel like this one, it's definitely, it fits this category of first of this particular actor franchise movies because it knows the things that people like, but but it doesn't know how to quite incorporate them all without making a four-hour movie. Um, and I think they kind of figure it out as it goes along and then like somebody on the production staff like goes on an acid trip and we we pivot to the weird ones with like the oil, the tunnel and the whatever the other one with the guy with the face that has the crystals in it. You're talking about die another day, die another day. And the the world world is not not enough. enough. Yeah. Yeah. Those are awful. It peaks in my, this is just my opinion. It could be wrong. I could be too close to the, to the art here, but I think it, it, it climaxes the Pierce Brosnan climaxes with, uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. I can't get on board with that. Jonathan it's Price. Got, you just, you have such a uh, prejudice against Jonathan Price in movies. It's got Ricky Jay in it. Like, it's such a weird fucking, Terry Hatcher as the Bond girl. Unbelievable. Tell me, James, do you still sleep with a gun under your pillow? Mm. Um... I'm going to give this movie, I'll give it a soft, good, good. I was a little, dis- I was a little disappointed though. And the, mostly my thing is just Brosnan. Like I just don't, I don't get anything from him like at all. And I feel like, especially in this context where like Connery has shown how you can, 
how this character can like hide the truth from themselves, but not necessarily from the audience. There is no layering of Brosnan at all. I totally disagree. I see his ethos as a real like smoky quartz crystal where you, <laughs> you know, there's, it has a structure to it, but, but what is inside is somewhat obscured. That's a uh, quote from Dante's peak, right? Yes. That is him explaining you this rock. That the, such a nutcase. <laughs> I think this one's a good, good too. No. Um, I had a lot of fun with this one. I'm mad at myself for having given it that rating. Let's go to 2006 and Casino Royale. Your file shows no kills, Bond. But to become a double O, it takes two. How did you die? Your contact? Not well. You needn't worry. The second is... Yes. Considerably. The man was Le Chiffre, private banker to the world's terrorists. Which would explain how he could set up a high-stakes poker game at Casino Royale in Montenegro. If he loses this game, he'll have nowhere to run. You're the best player in the service. The Treasury has agreed to stake you in the game. But if you lose, our government will have directly financed terrorism. I will be keeping my eye on our government's money and off your perfectly formed house. You noticed. I hope our little game isn't causing you to perspire. This might be a very geeky way to start a Casino Royale conversation. But one of the things that interested me the most is that, so Martin Campbell, who directed GoldenEye and then didn't do any of the other Brosnan ones, comes back to do this one because after having made GoldenEye, he's just like, I don't want to do that anymore. I'll only do it if I get to create a new vision with a new actor. And I think it's kind of amazing that the same person made these oh, yeah. two movies um not because GoldenEye's bad and this is good but it just seems like he has a lot of different completely different interests like the right the sexuality is so ramped up the um you know the hotness of the landscapes is so ramped up the combat is so much more visceral his ability to sustain a set piece with more tension is ramped up. It's kind of wild that it's the same filmmaker. Yeah. And even just like having the cold open be in black and white in sort of that like grainy, like he's really not afraid to throw out everything we can understand about Bond as like a visual series. This right. one definitely reinvents that, you know, that sustained shot, you know, seemingly maybe influenced by. This one to me felt like it it had taken a, a note out of the Mission Impossible 3 playbook where yeah. it's suddenly like we're using some Dutch angles. We're zooming in hard on people's faces. We're going to let people run through a whole set piece without cutting in like a really artfully done motion shot. Like I think this one is benefiting from the moment that action movies are in. but And also being very like you know, post late nineties, very self serious. Right. Um, another way to put that is that Paul Haggis, who did the rewrite on the movie and, and wrote the climax in Venice with Vesper literally says we wanted to Batman begins it, which is just such a signpost of 
modern action filmmaking. That's a good, um, yeah, that's a good touchstone as well. And this movie too, I think benefits structurally from the fact that there's like the card playing part and then there's like the action movie part. Right. And there are little sort of teases and confrontations and sort of people shooting at each other from one hotel room to the other, but there's, it never goes full action set piece until it is time. Mm -hmm. Can I read the IMDb summary? Please. After earning double O status and a license to kill secret agent, James Bond sets out on his first mission as double O seven. Bond must defeat a private banker funding terrorists in a high-stakes game of poker at Casino Royale, Montenegro. I want to talk about this banker, and I also want to bid farewell to another icon who passed away recently, and Alex Trebek. I was watching this supercut of him saying the word genre. Did you see this? No. You and I, we say the word genre a lot because our film podcast hop genre to genre and we typically say it genre do we not yeah is there a different way to say it well trebek gets pretty fucking french with it so much that i like can't do it because that in the french pronunciation that re is so like there but not there it's very translucent right he's more like genre yes that's it you did it and that made me laugh so hard because nobody in this movie can figure out whether to pronounce the re on le chiffre um, certain people yes. just go Le Dench says Le Chief, Other and people then go, people go Le, Le Chiffre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Jeffrey Wright says like Le Chiffre. Right. Um, so I it just made me think that Le Alex, Chief. that I would have loved for Alex Trebek to play, and I know exactly who he should play. He needs to take Giancarlo Gianni's Rene Mathis part. Oh, obviously, the Mathis part is is vintage Trebek. It's vintage Trebek. Get the mustache back and just let him say Le Chiffre over and over again. Incredible. Is it weird that Connery and Trebek died so close together? I know people have like pointed it out on the internet already, but it's just very strange that they like became sort of similar self-serious parodies, so much so that they like had this death match on many Will Ferrell sketches on and Daryl Hammond on SNL. It is funny. I hadn't thought about that. When the joke was over, so were they. <laughs> Jesus Christ. No. <laughs> um, yeah. Rest in peace guys. Um, so Daniel Craig. Blonde bond. It was so fucking funny to me going back and reading the remembering that like people were mad that he wasn't a tall brunette and it's just like Jesus right. Christ the people who this this franchise I have to say like people who are like really into Bond are like some pretty like retrograde assholes. Like if you look, <laughs> if you look at the YouTube comments for like any Bond clip, it's just everyone being like, "This Roger Moore is probably the best Bond, and this is the best scene in this movie." And if anyone says he's being weird toward those women, like you're wrong. Incredible. It's so funny because I mean I think you define the series as hating itself uh, quite a bit, but I think it's possible too that a lot of people just love to hate these movies 
Like mm. they love very specific things about very specific kinds of them, but everything else they hate. Hmm. That's interesting. They especially hate the 2020s meltdown. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, but let's talk about that because that is like what this movie is trying to engage with in some ways. Like we're even further past the end of the cold war. And here you have a guy who is a killer. That's what that black and white piece at the beginning is all about proving. And Mm -hmm. we're here to dabble at least in the first Craig movie in the psychology of a killer. Yes. This one is not afraid to say that this dude is a little unhinged because of what he does for a living. Um, I think it's then very quick to become like a credit card commercial in that maybe he's not a killer, but maybe he's like a capitalist or maybe he's a patriot in some way. And maybe this is justified because of how beautiful it is. Um, It has fun though. Like I don't want you to frame it in a way that this movie isn't having fun. Cause I think the Le Chiffre villain in how ridiculous that is. It's like the, it's just the half turn back from, you know, Robert Carlyle having that fucking bullet in his head to something where it's just a guy just has like a tear duct problem. Like that to me is reasonable. Right. Right. I actually think that this is a very, very happy medium of the psychology remaining somewhat implied by the time, by the time we get to, I mean, Skyfall just puts all its fucking cards on the table and I think it is a pretty good movie. But by the time we get to Spectre and we're just like, his parents, his parents, his job. It's just like, not everything has to be fucking Chris Nolan, guys. Like, what are we... If, if it, at that point, by the time we get to Spectre, and I don't know what No Time to Die is going to be like. It feels like the franchise like wants to end itself. It's like you guys realize if we find out what is truly at the core of this character in a clinical psychology way, there's no fucking point to watching these movies anymore. Um, I think that's kind of the death drive of the whole franchise. But Craig is able to get that stuff across just by virtue of being a really good actor. I do think he probably is the best. He's not the best movie star. Of any of the Bonds, I think that would be Connery, but I think he is the best actor. And in the famous rope swinging Le Chiffre torture, which is still, I remember seeing that in the theater. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, oh, when he gives him the scrot taps. There it is. When he starts to cackle on the fourth and fifth scrot tap, that tells you <laughs> so much more about James Bond than any of the lines that are like, you don't let people in, do you, James? Um, Craig's right. acting does all the work. Yeah. If you want to scratch my scrot, you go right ahead. Mads Mikkelsen, it's so great to watch him be thwarted in these little moments. Because um, he's Hannibal. He goes on to play Hannibal, right? Um, and he's, right. Just, like, he's just all business. And he's so mad that James Bond is not. Like, when he gets pissed at how long the the Vesper cocktail order takes and everyone at the table is like, yes, give me one of those. (laughs) He's like, can we play some fucking cards? And Mads is great in this movie. Yes. He goes back to that idea that the villain is a better actor than the hero here. Um, And his tension is palpable because I think the movie 
expertly gives him stakes too of he's just lost a bunch of money to an even bigger he's just like a a pragmatist he's just a capitalist he's not necessarily evil he's a cog in a bigger machine but he's lost money you know for this warlord so he has to win the game everybody has the reason to win the game I think that really sort of humanizes, I mean, he's a bad dude for sure, but you also like get that they're both getting beaten up in their own way, like between rounds here. Right. Yeah. He just does a great job of, I mean, Mads Mikkelsen is a big, strong guy himself, but he's such an interesting job between seeming very physically imposing, but being very weak. Right. He's got that tear duct and he has that inhaler. Um, just those little details, I think, do a lot of work for him. Can we talk about, speaking of completely new territory, Eva Green as Vesper Lind, I think, is a new, another new high watermark. Right. This is the the true arc of like giving this kind of Bond girl some agency here and some character here uh, in a way that, of course, he's got like, the guy's wife who he like gets the car from who he fools around with, who doesn't really have a personality uh, who ends up dead. Um, But the, yeah, the Eva green, that's, that's something else. And that's something new and, you know, sort of exciting about it. Like that would be a cool thing if this movie decided that it was, could be like Jane Bond or something. Mm-hmm. People would fucking lose their minds. Yeah. Bear in mind, people were mad. He wasn't over six feet tall and brunette. <laughs> Right. But again, I think this movie is an interesting text too, because he's also, this movie sort of draws a little more attention to the fact that Bond makes a lot of mistakes in this movie. Oh, that sure. whole opening set piece of executing the guy at that Ugandan or no Madagascar uh, embassy is like a massive mistake. Um, yeah. And Vesper gets also, the drop on him. I also like too, that his gadgets aren't always like, a hundred percent effective. Like the thing he takes, like the thing that's going to shock his heart back after he's had this poison, like the wire slipped out and he's got to like put the thing together like a little bit. Like to me that grounds it in a physical reality where it's like, of course this like mass produced whatever thing or this Jerry rigged thing in your, in your rental car, like is going to need a little uh, assembly upon arrival. (laughs) Right. It's very true. I don't quite know where I will talk. Let's talk about where we might make a cut because I do think that the Vesper, the filmmaking in the Vesper scene in Venice is tremendous and heartbreaking. And I think also makes a comment. The scene of her first Eva Green's drowning acting is amazing. Um, But also in a way that's not too loud you see that this Bond is not capable of making choices. He is the Queen's terrier, as Sean Bean told Pierce Brosnan in the other one. And in that final scene, it's it's Eva Green, who's it's Vesper, who has made all the choices, and he's just kind of following around like a soon-to-be heartbroken little puppy. And I think that, again, that's the kind of stuff that says more about his psychology than some Christoph Waltz monologue about his parents. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'll take it a step further in that this movie makes a strong argument for like him just being masculinity wielded by different women right? Uh, in many cases. Very true. Uh, which makes his character both like 
kind of sad, uh, but also more interesting that he's not totally in control. I think control is a big thing about all these movies is like, Oh, who's in control? Who's dominating who? Like, where's the line of like consent and where's the line of like him duping someone for his own ends. And in this one, it, it almost feels like he doesn't have that thing where like Connery, he would like, you know, just have sex with her twice because he knew he could before she would get caught by the, the bigger fish or whatever. There really isn't that here. There's an earnestness that he almost believes other people before they believe him. Hmm. That's a good point. Also watching all these in succession, it has to be said that like just Craig as an athletic presence is amazing. And you talked about those packs. Yeah. You talked about the mission impossible three, um, filmmaking that's not possible if you don't have someone running like a you know a 4940 <laughs> and doing like right. parkour shit down elevator shafts i mean just the level of you know it's no wonder he keeps hurting oh yeah himself. that construction site is unbelievable yeah but that's you know that's a new thing that's a new wrinkle that right continues but to be it's great. And it also shows two almost like body movement styles. Like you have the guy he's chasing almost doing these parkour moves that are now kind of ubiquitous from the way, you know, we experience that kind of athletics. But in the way Craig is kind of facing, he's just like smashing through walls. Like he's just like bodybuilder, like I hit the gym kind of guy versus someone who is an athlete. So I almost argue that he's not that athletic. He's just fucking strong. (laughs) He's a tank. He's a tank. He's, he goes through that wall. Like the Brosnan tank goes through that wall in Goldeneye. There you go. There you go. Um, how do you feel about the poker? Um, I'm not a person for whom like the world series of poker is an interesting thing. I mean, maybe I was compelled by it when I first saw this movie in the theaters, but now knowing how it's going to like turn out, like I'm more kind of waiting for them to take their like every six hour break or whatever. Cause that's when the <laughs> intrigue is going to happen and that's the thing too like this bond is also not the connery card player like he doesn't win the final hand in in the what you think is the final match right you know that they that the plot lets it go that long and maybe that's what you mean by like potential cuts Mm. um but the poker definitely goes on, but it doesn't feel accidental. I mean, the whole point is that they've been sitting there for like 36 hours or something. Right. Yeah. I like it. I did find myself, if I was going to be a picky bastard about something, it's sort of like the why poker of it all. Like after bond loses the first 10 million and he's getting very mad at Vesper and he's like, I think the line is like, you know I can beat him. And I'm I found myself being like, is that the point of this movie that like we understand that Bond is good at poker and is sort of like destined to win in some sort of like sp- like rocky way? <laughs> like what it, it's a little clunky getting in and out of poker as the thing that's getting us where we need right. to go. Well, cuz it's it's not about the fact that he can win, it's about his confidence that he can. Right. You know, so you don't really, you just need somebody to stake 
this idea of, I mean, this masculinity we're talking about, just stake me because I can do it kind of thinking uh, when it's not really clear that he can and maybe that he does is more lucky than good. The scene where the first guy has a straight and the next guy has a full house and the Shifra has four of a kind and then Bond has the straight flush. That is the silliest hand of poker. I was reminded of Kurt Russell in Escape from L.A. having to make half-court shots to save his life. Like, that is the equivalent of those four people having that in those four hands. Well, it's also kind of like poker... Like, they're playing, what, like, Texas Hold'em? Yeah. Like, take me back to, like, the Baccarat of, mm. like, some of these earlier movies where, like, and, then, and, like, explain that game to me. Like, I had no fucking idea where it's, like, the lady has a has a six. Oh, but the gentleman has a four, and he wins. <laughs> it's, and like, long wooden spatulas. Okay. Tell me if this is like a very basic opinion, because I feel like a lot of times I hew toward enjoying older, more sophisticated, like, or in my mind, like slightly more sophisticated takes. But I was just kind of knocked over by this movie. And it's like, this is the, this is, these are the best Bond movies. And I can't believe I had such a basic ass opinion, but that's, that was what I took away. Yeah. You're want to hew towards the, uh, the legacy films. Right. Um, I do do that in an annoying way. No, I agree with you. I think in many ways, a lot of action movie franchises get stupider and stupider and the effects in them do not make them better movies. In fact, they make them worse movies. However, I think this movie is not one of those. In fact, the the car chases and like the cinematography that allows them to like zoom around these rooms and the like A level cast that they can get here, plus really being able to like enjoy those establishing helicopter shots of these exotic cities and locations. Uh, it really comes together in a quite an enjoyable, uh, both aesthetic and intellectual experience. So I, I think this is undoubtedly a good, good and maybe my favorite of the five. I'm basic right there with you. Do you think, do you take Casino Royale or Skyfall? I think Skyfall is the superior film Mm -hmm. the breeziness Um, of casino royale might be a little more enjoyable oh i think it's definitely like the best transitional bond that kind of sets the tone uh, for the rest of them but i think it's a star wars colon a new hope to uh star wars colon empire strikes back nice um tell me if we agree with this statement is conry the best bond but the Craig movies are the best movies. I am. uh, Yeah. When I think James Bond, I think Sean Connery. Like I think him fucking with Goldfinger with the magnify or with the binoculars in that pool in Miami beach. Like that's what I think of. (laughs) 
Um, and that may just be because I also like the movie Catch Me If You Can, which makes that sort of an uh, makes that iconography in a certain way. Um, but I think, yeah, Connery was Bond. The rest were iterations thereof. But yes, in terms of the potential for what this underlying intellectual property can be in terms of a motion picture, I think, yes, the Craig ones are as good as they've been. Certainly no more about planes than guns, pussy. I love the, I kept thinking of the trip line as I was doing Conway all week. You know, you, you, you have a tendency to push your lip up to get the Scottishness of it. And when Coogan is doing that, Rob Brydon goes, you look very worried. <laughs> um, well, no, this was so much fun. Absolutely. It was a great distraction from this highly anxious week. Oh uh, Glad we got to look back at this weird franchise. And I hope at some point, allegedly April 2021, but I hope we get a new Bond. Yeah, did you see that MGM was like $600? <laughs> Both the world and $600 million are not enough to get that movie on streaming. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's a huge thing for them. That's that's years for them. You know, right. it's really that and Wonder Woman 1984 that are like the remaining things that either don't have a pending streaming deal uh, or like some rescheduled date or something. Right. Yeah, it really feels like if No Time to Die were to go to streaming, it would be, that would feel like the end of this, right? I mean, like this is, this is an old, this is a dinosauric franchise and uh, being a fucking billion dollar theatrical release is, is all that's left, I think. Yeah. I mean, it would be an interesting test case if they did do the just like $25 or like whatever they do for these like first run movies thing and just see how much it did make. Uh, but that's a huge gamble and a real fuck you to distributors right? and exhibitors. Yeah. I mean, you know, it had production problems that pushed it back like two years anyway. Like what's another few months According to the New York Times, uh, vaccines just around the corner. Can't wait to get that antidote injected right into my neck. This was fun. I'll see you soon.